Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. This week, we have a special episode dedicated to Jim Thatcher, who worked on some of the first screen readers for the IBM PC. Jim Thatcher passed away a few weeks ago on December 7th, 2019. And in honor of his life and his work, we are reprising an episode we did in which we interviewed him about five years ago, discussing his work on the early screen readers and later developing the early standards for web accessibility. But first for our tip of the week. We keep encouraging you to visit our website because of all of the different bits of information as well as the complete archive of shows that's up there. Well, this week's tip is that while you're on our website at www.eyesonsuccess.net, you can use our handy search feature to find shows that are in our archive of over 170 episodes so far, and it grows every week. Quick note, five years later, we have over 450 episodes in our searchable archives. So we know it's pretty difficult to look through a list of many, many shows and find what you're looking for, and that's why we put in the search feature on our website. By using the search feature, you can type in a keyword or a topic in which you're interested or the show number, because we often give the show numbers associated with shows. And if you do that and perform the search, you'll come up with a list of shows matching that criterion with links to the audio for that show, the show notes for that show, and a summary for that show. So that makes it nice and easy. This week's show is about screen readers and web accessibility. So just for an example, we typed screen reader into the search box on our website, and this brought up shows on a large number of screen readers, including the JAWS screen reader for Windows, Window Eyes, Orca, a screen reader used in the Linux operating system, NVDA, which is a free open source screen reader. SA2Go, a web-based screen reader. And VoiceOver that comes standard on all of the Apple products. And we've done shows talking about all of those screen readers. So performing the search, it makes it very easy to find those shows. And if you want to learn more about some of these screen readers or hear some demos of them, that's how to do it. So make use of that search feature. And you can look up topics as varied as knitting or hiking or smartphones or anything you're interested in. And if we've talked about it, you'll probably find it that way. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Let's start by meeting Jim Thatcher and learning why he first started developing a screen reader. My name is Jim Thatcher, and I'm in Austin, Texas, and I spent 37 years working at IBM, retiring in 2000, and I've been working on consulting for accessibility for the past 16 years. I went to IBM in 1963. I went with a guy whose name is Jess Wright. He was also at the University of Michigan, and he was my thesis advisor, my PhD thesis advisor, and he was blind. 
he and I went to the math department at IBM Research in Yorktown Heights, New York. And basically we did mathematical computer science for about 15 years. And there were no screen readers, there were hardly computers except for mainframes that were very interesting. And then in 1978, we had the opportunity to get a prototype talking terminal, as it was called. Now remember that back then terminals consisted of these big boxes with just a green screen and the only thing that went on it was text. Oh, we had those. So we got this prototype talking terminal, uh, which was a talking 3270 terminal, which was really a, a very dumb terminal. And the whole thing cost the math department $18,000. Now you've got to think back about when that was. And I mean, that's a long time ago. And $18,000 was a hell of a lot of money. And at that same time, around 78 to 80, IBM was creating the IBM PC, which was a big deal and it was new. And in the, basically the research division generally, people were encouraging uh, work that related to the PC. And so we had this idea, if we could make the PC talk the way this talking terminal talked, that we could provide a talking terminal for $2,000 instead of 18,000 that this was slated to be. And that was the work that began the effort to create a screen reader. Our initial effort was literally to make it a talking terminal. We didn't even in the beginning even think about it possibly being a talking PC. That is, it was just going to be a 3270 terminal emulator that would interface with the mainframe and that would talk. So you weren't making a specific program for these DOS computers at the time. You just wanted to modify it so that it could be used as a terminal to a mainframe. Is that right? Yes. So it would be a, there were terminal emulators. So we have a separate card and you have a terminal emulator and we wanted that terminal emulator to basically speak. So that's what we were trying to do. This wasn't a product IBM was interested in. Absolutely not. No. The general feeling at Yorktown Heights at the time at the research center was in the general kind of instruction by management was think about things you can do that would make the PC better. Got it. So this was one of those efforts. Yeah, and our attitude was, well, we make it talk, and that'll make it a lot better from some people. Right, and you had an immediate use for that with the people you work with. Yes, absolutely. That's the best kind of effort to get things rolling. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is the development of the earliest screen readers. Now, we just heard that the project that Jim was working on at IBM was never really intended to be a screen reader. So let's hear how the first screen reader product came about. That effort over the next two years basically expanded and we said, my goodness, we got to maybe make these other parts. Of, and besides that, there's a process of logging on and starting up the terminal emulator that we're not speaking we're only speaking once we get to the emulator and so we thought well let's make the whole thing talk the time this was starting there definitely weren't other screen readers around that is for the pc there weren't other pcs around so we basically i think it was the next like total of four years from 1978 to 82 maybe even 83 we started calling it pc said s-a-i-d and we thought that was really cool 
because SID was the name of the other thing, Synthetic Audio Interface Driver. So this was a PC SID, and we thought that was a really great name. By the time the development labs started to realize that this would be a good thing to actually make as a product, much to my surprise, actually. So they took it over, and that's the development labs in Boca Raton, Florida, took it over, and as they developed it, which took about a year and a half, so we're about to 88, I think, I'm not sure about the exact dates, sorry, they decided to change the name of it from PC said, which I thought was really cool, to IBM Screen Reader. Right, and Screen Reader was actually the brand name from the IBM Screen Reader at the time, right? That is the name that IBM called it. You mentioned a trademark. There's never been a trademark. They just called it IBM, which I thought was really stupid. I thought PC said was really a cool name. And I thought IBM Screen Reader was really, really stupid. But You don't always get a choice when you're working in corporate America. <laughs> that's right. Well, I can also say it seems to me they were right and I was wrong. <laughs> so you kind of glossed over this quickly about there being a hardware component. As I recall in the old days, it wasn't possible or it wasn't the architecture to have the software make the speech synthesizers work inside computers, but there was also a separate hardware board that had to run all the speech synthesizers. Is that the way this was done? Well, yes. The said system, that was that huge $18,000 talking terminal, actually had a boat track synthesizer the size of a large suitcase as its speech synthesizer. And PC said, the precursor to IBM Screen Reader, initially worked on a lot of different serial synthesizers. Serial in the, in the, in the sense that they plugged in the serial port of the personal computer. Oh, so this one you can actually plug in the serial port. That's right. And then uh, later on, cards began to be made for the PC which basically took those boxes and put them as cards on the PC. And then all you had to do was plug them in and the thing started to talk. So it was an evolution from, from a huge synthesizer box epitomized by the Botrax PC. About the time that IBM Screen Reader actually came out as a product, there was this thing called the graphical user interface that was rearing its ugly head. So this must have been in the late 80s now, right? Yes, so this is late 80s. And I remember just, it was really hard to get the PC to talk as well as we got it to talk. And as quickly, I mean, and to not interfere basically with the running of the machine. And so the idea that all of a sudden, all of that text that we worked with was not going to be there was really scary. What I arranged with the developers in Florida and with my management in IBM research was to visit um, the Hursley England lab where IBM was developing OS2, which is operating system two, and it's um, graphical user interface whose exact name I've forgotten. And actually at that time, IBM was actually working with Microsoft. So this was a joint effort. Both companies had developed a Windows-like Windows as in um, Microsoft Windows type system. Before I got over there, the cooperation between IBM and Microsoft had ended. And so I was going over to um, England to work with IBM on its graphical user interface and how to possibly make that talk. I was there six months and, and it was a fascinating uh, experience because I had, you know, this was new kind of stuff for me, basically as a mathematician. 
What changed for you in switching from DOS to a graphical user interface? It was really exciting that the stuff that had been really hard in the DOS screen reader, like recognizing menus and, and pop-up windows and things like that, which in text DOS was happening a lot, and screen, IBM Screen Reader did really well on that stuff, but it was very complicated to do. You had to literally monitor the entire screen trying to find things that changed little boxes showing up and that would end up being quote windows and I say that be careful I don't mean real windows I just mean boxes on the screen that for a sighted user look like little windows because there hadn't been windows yet so it's complicated to say all that right so it's analogous to a dialogue box I would guess right but with the graphical user interface these things were simple because basically they were settings in a, a call to create a dialogue or create a menu or to create this or that and all the screen reader had to do was intercept that stuff and it would know all, it would know all about the menus and, and the text dialogue and stuff like that. So I guess the difference was in the DOS world, as you said, you were just putting text on a screen in different places, but they weren't necessarily programmatically related to each other. Whereas in Windows, you actually created a particular kind of toolbar or button object. You knew what it was. Yes, stronger. It wasn't that they weren't connected at all. Right. I mean, there was no connection. Whereas it's the opposite when you got to the, basically to the graphic user interface. So all these dialogues and menus and things like that, all of a sudden look like, well, this is really going to be cool. I had spent most of my time trying to figure out how to do that cleanly with DOS as it had evolved by the time the product came out. And it was going to be a snap. I assume there were some new challenges to compensate for these other things that got easier. There was a whole, one big problem, and that is <laughs> anytime you you know did an application in this new graphical user interface, you would be drawing pixels on, on the screen. And all of a sudden, the problem of how to get access was really, really difficult again. The result of that effort was referred to as the off-screen model. Is that familiar to you? Oh, yes. They talk about that all the time in today's modern screen readers. Yes. For our listeners that aren't really familiar with that, can you describe what an off-screen model is? Yeah. So imagine everything that's on your screen has been actually put up there by various function calls that blip text onto the screen. But it, it ends up putting it there as, as pixels. I mean, it's not, after it's there, it's not text anymore. You gotta understand that it's, it, there are call function calls that put it there, but when it's there, it is just pixels. Black pixels and white pixels, typical of text. But of course, pictures and images on people and everything, movies, cartoons, I don't care, it's all put as pixels. But at one point, that text that's going on the screen is, is, the, is an argument to some kind of function call that says, okay, put hello world at position 17, 45. What the off-screen model did was correlate pixel position and that text and basically said, okay, we've got that text at this location. It was an off-screen model of the screen and it contained text, whereas the screen only contained pixels. So basically, you're trying to recreate the textual version of the screen, which we call the off-screen model. So essentially, the modern screen readers then are looking at this off-screen model to know what's on the screen, and they can give a user a sense of 
what a sighted person is seeing on the physical screen. That all kind of culminated in a um, technology that was ready to be a product, which we called Screen Reader 2. That was really, really exciting renaming. But anyway, Screen Reader 2 was the screen reader for the graphical user interface and came out in 1992 or 3. Did that work in Windows or was that geared mostly towards IBM's OS2 operating system? It was definitely only IBM OS2 called Presentation Manager. Later, you'll be able to run Windows programs in the graphical user, but that time you couldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time that we were working for the screen reader for the graphical user interface on the PC, Wes Boyd was working on a screen reader for the Mac. His was the first screen reader for the Mac. And as such, his was the first screen reader for a graphical user interface, where ours was the first screen reader for a graphical user interface on a PC. That's kind of the history of those, those events. I didn't realize IBM's OS2 was around that long into the 90s. It wasn't. It wasn't around that long. I don't know. It ended up being able to run Windows applications, which was important. And there were a lot of businesses that liked IBM and so would take OS2 over Windows. Windows was kind of scary in those days. Oh, it was especially scary to the blind. Absolutely scary for the blind, unequivocally. But but both West Boyd's work and our work so that it was it was really possible to make a difference and to make it uh, usable. So you sort of developed the fundamental techniques that made it possible to carry around this technology for a long time, and eventually got adopted by many other uh, manufacturers and developers. Yes, absolutely. I think the two components of that sharing was primarily the off-screen model that, as I said, was new technology and was shared uh, amongst other developers doing the same kind of work. I mentioned Rich working with Freedom Scientific on, on that, um, but it was working with others. Window Eyes was, uh, GW Micro was also contacting us, and we actually were visit, visited them a couple of times because they wanted to understand how we were doing it. And coming from IBM, kind of, we were glad to, to share that information. And it wasn't a big deal for IBM, just as we've talked about earlier. We didn't even, there wasn't any trademarking of the name even when we put out Screen Reader for DOS. So you just collaborated essentially with other commercial vendors and developers just to be kind of nice guys and advance this technology and make computers more accessible for the visually impaired. Yeah, not just not being nice guys. The um, When we did... The screen editor DOS, there were something like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like 65 blind employees of IBM. And so these were our beta testers doing the, the DOS version of screen reader. And I mean, were they ever good beta testers? Because they were in IBM, they were doing IBM work, and here was the opportunity to use the computer and do their work and contribute to the development of, of screen reader. Nowadays, people can customize the behavior of their screen reader quite a bit through the use of scripts or user settings, etc. Was there anything like that back when you started developing the first screen readers? One of the other features of screen reader, which uh, is rarely talked about, that I love to mention, and that is that the entire operation was basically profile-based. What I mean by that is what we coded were a bunch of functions that you could like get the text at a certain position or you could uh, find out the colors of things and you could assign a sequence of these kinds of functions 
to a keyboard press or a keypad. Screen reader had a keypad of its own for various reasons, but it did. And so you, basically you put together what was called a profile, and that was the behavior a blind user used when they used screen reader. And they could go in and change that. You did that a long time ago then. We did that a long time ago, yes. It, it, I mean, I, I, loved, I loved the concept, and rarely did anybody comment on it. The fact that really Screener itself, as any person was using it, was basically a profile. And you could go in and change that profile at any time, and that would change the behavior of your screener. You could add functions to new for different keys. You could uh, change the way functions were spoken. But you had to know the profile language. So we had to go through the process of writing documentation that described how to use this profile language and how to change your profile and how to change your screen reader. I think that's a major uh, capability of these screen readers because just because it reads all the stuff that comes to the screen and yeah, you can see it doesn't actually make it usable. So you really want to customize some applications as to what they'll speak and when and how you can control it. That's right. That's right. And it's incredible to think how far these screen readers have come in the past several decades. And they started out relatively simple, but at least made these things accessible. And I remember going through many of these transitions myself from MS-DOS to a graphical user interface with Windows. And, you know, these days our screen readers are very easy to use, very flexible, give you just the right information you need at the right time. And as we pointed out, they're very flexible and customizable. And the voices have gotten a whole lot better. I remember walking into Pete's office at work and he'd be listening to his screen reader and neither one of us could understand anything it was saying. So if you want to hear about the history of the speech synthesizers that are built into the screen readers, we did a show number 1308 on that. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Now for this week's final item, the early history of and Jim's involvement in web accessibility and also how to get more information about his life's work and the subjects he covered. So after you worked on Screen Reader 2, what came next? Screen Reader 2 is around 1993 or 4, I'm not sure of the dates. And after that, I had an opportunity to move from New York and Yorktown Heights to where I am now in Austin, Texas. So I, I came to the uh, IBM lab in Austin. And instead of doing assistive technology, I ended up focusing on, for the first time, accessibility. And really, I never worried about accessibility. I never imagined changing the products that we were accessing, but only trying to make the product that we were using, making screen reader work it better. I didn't think of asking people to do a better job. But that changed, especially with the web which when we started OS2 Screen Reader, there wasn't a web. So the effort here turned to uh, advocating for accessibility. In particular, I wanted IBM to have its web content and its websites accessible. And the way I advocated for that is I wrote a set of uh, accessibility guidelines and I put them on the IBM site, just I put them there. And then as I advocated for accessibility, trying to get corporate uh, buy-in, I pointed out that we already had accessibility guidelines on our website and that we ought to comply with them. And corporate agreed, and we ended up having a, a senior vice president basically make the announcement we're going to do everything accessible. Because basically, because of 508, I argued them, and he argued back that IBM's biggest customer was the federal government. 
And so it's silly to have two sets of products, one set accessible and five-weight compliant and the other one not. So he said, let's make it all 508 compliant. You're referencing 508 compliant. Can you explain what that was? Sure. Let's see. First of all, the Americans with Disability Act was passed in 1990, at which time there really wasn't any web. So uh, access was basically talking about physical access, width of doors and slopes of ramps and things like that. And the Justice Department has frequently said, well, of course, the ADA applies to the web um, because people have to be able to access it. But there were, never were any guidelines as part of the ADA to point to. So the ADA's influence on accessibility in the web um, was very limited. However, in about 1990, I'm guessing 98, Section 508 was actually passed by Congress saying that, that federal websites should be accessible and a committee was formed, of which I was a vice chair, to create standards for that accessibility. Actually, federal websites are required to uh, meet these 508 standards. People often talk about 508 accessibility. I'm going to be 508 compliant. That makes sense because there are a set of guidelines, but others people think I have to be 508 compliant. Well, they don't. The only organizations that have to be compliant with Section 508 guidelines are federal agencies, exclusive of the post office and the Department of Defense, according to the law it was, as it was written in the late 90s. 508 is really important in accessibility terms because it is the thing that codified standards for accessible content. I noticed on your website that you carry on a lot of this work today and apparently consult in accessibility and helping people follow these guidelines. Can you talk a little about that? Sure. The advocacy in the time frame from 1996 to 2000 when I left IBM was basically building Section 508 guidelines, which I helped to do, and then uh, helping IBM comply with those guidelines. When I retired in, in 2000, I started the work of consulting with companies who want help in understanding or confirmation that their understanding is correct of the accessibility guidelines. And what I do is evaluate typically a limited number of pages to see how well they comply with Section 508 and the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines today in version two. And typically I do, I work about half time and evaluate these sites. I always ask a client to pick out carefully representative pages so that their developers don't have to see evaluations of 50 pages, all of which are basically the same. Rather, they see evaluations of pages that represent the kind of technology they have. Now, others don't do that because they get paid by the page, basically, and so they want as many pages as they can get. But I don't like it that way. I like to get just a few pages and then work with the developers if they have any questions about how to generalize that. When Jim Thatcher retired in 2016, he requested that all inquiries be directed to nobility at K-N-O-W-B-I-L-I-T-Y dot org. So thanks to Jim for all the work he did that makes our work possible these days. And as usual, if you're looking for any of the contact information you've heard in the show, go to the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. 
That's it for show number 2001. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be discussing books featuring blind characters. Blind since birth, Phyllis Campbell is a prize-winning author who started writing as a young child. Over the years, she has written a number of books, including both fiction and nonfiction, as well as many magazine articles. We'll speak with her about her writings and how she portrays blind characters in some of her books. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy, and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.